0: Say, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue.
1: Hello, hello.
2: And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Wanted to offer a quick update on the impeachment trial. Wow. Sure. Don't know if you know, the president's on trial right now in the Senate. Right uh, now? Yeah, as we speak. We'll um, the uh, <laughs> uh, There's been a couple interesting developments. So on Wednesday, Alan Dershowitz, uh, we all know who Alan Dershowitz is, former Harvard law professor, O.J. Simpson lawyer, right? legal Celebrity, I suppose, still, of some measure. He's on the Trump defense team. He put forward an interesting position on the Senate floor uh, regarding the sort of the level of behavior that rises to impeachment, which has become a core question here. Uh, He said, there was an, an extensive argument he made, but he said, If a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. So this was sort of interpreted as basically saying, pres- as long as the president deems it, you know, in the national interest to be reelected, he can do anything he wants, uh, which was met with some level of, you know, skepticism and even laughing in the uh, in the legal community. But this gets to what we talked about with Norm Warnstein a couple episodes ago, where, you know, we're in this sort of quasi judicial thing, and if you make arguments that might sound a little funny, it's as long as you have 67 votes in hand uh, right. it's, uh, it's or, or, you know if you have you know a minority of votes in hand you right know, then it, then it's totally fine right um, also today uh, as we record on Thursday uh, John Roberts uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court has sort of taken a, a a mostly hands-off approach he's overseeing the the proceedings which was kind of the book people thought he would sort of it was more of a custodial role than, like, actually, you know, being, right. a, being but, an active participant in the case. But we've been watching really
0: closely because this is for, you know, legal nerds like us. Seeing what Roberts would or would not do yeah. in this role was really – it's super interesting. Yeah, I've been
1: really closely watching what robes he's wearing. <laughs> so <laughs> there
0: far, There was a lot of talk about what robes So he far, yeah. the sure. standard
1: issue, right? I, uh, as, as far as yeah. I
0: know.
2: I um, that is the case. But, uh, yeah, so today – they are, they're in the question and answer session, and every question that comes before the Senate comes up for a vote um, about whether it can even be asked. Um, and Rand Paul, the senator from Kentucky, was going to ask a question that was going to Reveal the name of the Ukrainian scandal whistleblower, um and Roberts actually uh, said, We're not even going to have a vote on this. this is this question will not be heard, uh, which was a little more intrusive than people thought he was going to be, yeah, for I him mean, to pipe I think, up that way I think
0: like you said, people largely thought it would m- mostly be just sort of a figurehead custodial role, keeping sort of things moving, yeah, um so that was pretty substantive,
2: yeah, we'll see uh I, 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 I'm not exactly sure about how much longer this will go on, but yeah, some interesting sort of developments uh. In the impeachment trial.
1: The main segment today, we're talking about, uh, we're staying in the Trump world.
2: We are, yes. I had uh, an interesting conversation with Joe Palazzolo, who is a Wall Street Journal investigative reporter. And he uh, and his colleague uh, were the ones who actually broke the uh, Michael Cohen hush money payment to Stormy Daniels uh, two years ago uh, for the for the journal. They won a Pulitzer for that work. And they expanded it into a book that came out earlier this month. It's called The Fixers. Um, it expands on the reporting of the actual... Uh, payment to Daniels, and also dives a little deeper into uh, the actual world of these these guys who append themselves to Trump and do sort of his most unsavory work. It's a very good book, and we had a very good talk about it.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing that talk you had, Alex. Um, I feel like we're also, with our first news story, circling back to another person that was big in the news a couple years ago, a story that broke, but now we have some further developments. Uh, it's one of my favorite people to talk about, Shkreli.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, Favorite is an interesting yeah. term there. He's, but yes. he's fascinating, guys. I mean, all <laughs> yeah. the stuff
0: with the Wu-Tang Clan, it's just fun to talk about. Yeah,
1: it's, yeah there's a lot of sort of um, strange things that we're not even going to get into today. But, uh, but yeah, we're talking about Martin Shkreli. Um We talked about this a little bit bef- before the show, but the, the idea of Shkreli rose to fame for something. And then went to jail for something else yeah and people sort of conflate them all the time but so this week we're talking about him again um but 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 specifically over finally there has been some legal action brought over the the drug price raising and and all sorts of other things that that originally sort of led to his infamous title as Pharma bro
2: yes okay uh, well let's let's get on to the the, the, the sort of it was so long ago and there's been so many legal, legal entanglements for the guy.
1: Let's talk about what 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 made him famous in the first place. Yeah. Um, so Crowley rose to fame in 2015. Um, his Turing Pharmaceutical was the company that he ran. Um, they acquired the only manufacturing license to um, Daraprim, which is a life-saving drug for HIV patients. Uh and then promptly raised the price of that drug more than 5000% from $13 a pill to $750 a pill. Yeah. Um he he was not very apologetic about doing that um and uh, you know he sort of went on went on the offensive after that happened which then led to this public persona as this Real life villain, I guess. I yeah, don't... he leaned
2: into it. He was very antagonistic and to anybody who would deign to question him about it. And Go he ahead, was Amber,
0: super easy to to dislike because it was just such a clear story of like how the public usually views the excesses of the pharmaceutical industry yeah. And, yeah. and that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: now, but but as we said, he's. <laughs> He's he's, already, he's he's currently in jail as
1: we speak, <laughs> yeah, correct? He but is. not but not for this. Martin is in prison as we speak. Okay. Um, and now there's new legal action. Yes. Okay. But so he, he he the so like I said at the up top, he's famous for one thing that 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 turned him into a villain. But but he went down for a very different sort of villainous uh, thing, <laughs> um, which we've also covered on the show. Right. But in case you forgot, um, but yeah. So in 2017, a jury convicted Shkreli of lying to investors in two hedge funds that he ran, um, part of which was about his sort of secret control over this other pharmaceutical company called Retrofin. Um, it, it, we don't need to get into the details there, but in 2018, he was sentenced to seven years in prison for that. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, the prosecutors were seeking like 15 years, so it's less than that, but um, prison is no... not fun either way right
0: and also i mean i think if you were the kind of person that followed this screlly story and didn't like this guy it wasn't full vindication because this was about something separate but it was this thing of like well this guy's done a lot of bad things at least he's going to prison for some of those misdeeds right but now we're circling back like you said to sort of the original sin of all of this
1: we are we're the 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 drug Price issue now is in court because this week the Federal Trade Commission and New York State's Attorney General filed a civil lawsuit against Shkreli and the successor to Turing Pharmaceuticals over um, the whole price hike situation. Yeah. So they claim that after he jacked up this the the price of of Daraprim, um, he orchestrated a quote elaborate and anti competitive scheme end quote, uh, to block generic rivals from getting approval to sell competing versions. The idea is if you raise a drug from $13 a pill to $750 a pill, other people are going to jump in and try to sell it for, for less. Sure. It, it would lead to that kind of thing, and they took specific steps to try to unfairly block that, according to this lawsuit. Um, the, the three main buckets are there was allegedly a, quote, complex web of contractual restrictions um, that prohibited distributors from selling Daraprim to generic companies, which would then prevent those companies from analyzing and getting samples that they would need to submit to the FDA to make right. their own yeah. generic version. Um, the next thing is they they blocked competitors from getting the the main active ingredient in Daraprim, mm-hmm. which is a fairly straightforward way to stop others from, from doing it. And then the third thing is they, they allegedly, um, there was something known as data blocking, uh, where they would prevent their um, the distributors of, of Daraprim from supplying data about the sales to third party companies, which then could, you know, get it to the generic company. So just a series of different moves that they sort of exerted their position in the market to prevent this generic competition is the the basic outline of it. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's an interesting, um, it's interesting that th- this is finally there. We should stress again, it's a civil lawsuit. It's not a, cr- it's not criminal oh, okay, charges yeah. like it was last time. But um, yeah, um, we're, we may finally get some, you know, we may finally get some, some closure on this, the, the, the origin story of, of Farmer Bro. Uh, moving from one of
2: our, Frequent subjects of the show, Martin Shkreli, to another one. It's a big law discrimination suit. Sure. Um, uh, although this one's a little bit different. Uh, we've done lots of suits, um, you know, about sort of either gender discrimination, racial, age discrimination, things like that. This is a little bit different. Um, so a former uh, sort of business side staffer at K&L Gates uh, sued the firm. Uh, for refusing to accommodate his diagnosis of ADHD uh, and also generalized anxiety and it and uh, uh, he accused the firm of eventually firing him in retaliation for his his requests to accommodate this this disability.
0: Yeah, these kind of lawsuits are, relatively common, these these accommodation suits for disabilities, yeah. but this one's interesting because ADHD, it's very prevalent these days, so yeah. there's probably a lot to kind of unpack. What happened here? Yeah,
2: so this was a complaint that was filed in Pennsylvania federal court on Monday, so uh, much as we just did with the Shkreli story, allegedly caveats throughout, but this is sort of the story that uh, is told here the suit was brought by a guy named Frank Craftman who uh, pre who used to work at KNL Gates's sort of client relations uh, management. Um, C.N.L. Gates, uh, you know, just I mean, most people probably know by headcount, it's consistently one of the top 15 or so firms, uh, largest firms in the country, Um, very active practice in lots of different uh, uh, sort of entities of corporate law. Um, But in any case, uh, this guy Craftsman began working there in 2016, uh, and he was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder and ADHD uh, in 2018. So. After he receives this diagnosis in 2018, he goes to the firm. He asks the firm to give him a, a laptop that he can then work from home because it, um, the office is very noisy. It's like a distracting environment for him. He can't concentrate, even with his diagnosis with his medicine. Um, this allows him to work from home. Uh, the firm declines that, uh, which, he has, which he, of course, frames as a an illegal sort of denial of accommodation under the ADA. The company told him, allegedly, that uh, he— Allowing him to work from home would sort of prompt others to make similar requests, and that becomes untenable. The suit uh, isn't really buying that. Uh, This is a quote from the suit. Other similarly situated employees without disabilities were permitted to work from home. Further, the plaintiff's request was a request for an accommodation related to his disability, not merely for his convenience. Hmm.
0: Yeah, these kind of suits, I mean, people that are in employment law sort of know the protocol here. Basically, if you have a disability, you have have to— tell your employer and ask for what you need. And it's supposed to be this iterative process where you talk it out. And employers can have certain things that they say they can't accommodate for legitimate business reasons. So it's the tension is between like what's a real business Mm -hmm. reason and what is a reasonable ask that they should accommodate to make sure the worker um, can carry on productively. So
2: and I mean, and yeah, and he's saying, I mean, beyond his, you know, his request for accommodation for a, you know, Related to a disability, he's mm-hmm. saying that you're you're allowing people to work from home who don't even have a disability, right. and right. so, so there's clearly
1: no reason for why you can't give it to me. Very at the very
2: least, inconsistently applied, uh, or you know, arbitrarily applied. In any case, though, it goes a little, it goes even a little bit further than this. So beyond the comp- the the firm's decision to just deny his request to work from home, uh, though they did offer him some noise canceling headphones to deal with the uh, mm-hmm. with the, with the noise in the office and the distractions. Um, but after this denial, Cat, uh, Castman then alleges that. Um, the firm begins to sort of place him under more scrutiny and uh, subject to more restrictions. Yeah. In de- going into details, he says they would be- they basically limited him to working 39 and a half hours a week going forward, and he would have to get sort of special approval to work any overtime. Uh, later in the week after that restriction was put in, he says that the company gave him his first negative performance review. Uh, k and again, allegedly also required him to file daily reports sort of accommodating for his work in a, in a given day after they questioned his productivity. And he says that this this only created more stress and more sort of uh, introduced more sort of hectic circumstances to his mm-hmm. work day. He's trying to complete the, re- the reporting requirements. He's also not allowed to take overtime to do it unless he gets permission. Um, anyway, soon after this, he's eventually fired. Uh, this is another quote from the suit. The reason given for plaintiff's termination was a pretext. The real reason for his termination was because of his disability and the employer's refusal to provide a reasonable accommodation.
0: I think this is really interesting because, you know, regardless of how this particular suit plays out, I'm glad we're talking about it because it just brings up an issue I think we're going to see more and more. Yeah. yeah. I
1: mean, I think anyone who grew up, you know, in the 1990s or in the 2000s certainly. There were the ADHD was everywhere. It was a it was a you know, there was more and more people were were diagnosed with ADHD as time went on. And Not as people um, are entering the workforce. Right. And so <laughs> yes. as you see that that generation take on more and more uh, of the, the roles in the professional world, it'll be interesting to see how often this comes up. Yeah, I
2: basically like I mean, you already hinted at I mean, the, the, basically any like medical research you see on this sees a a a noted, you know, spike in ADHD and generalized anxiety diagnosis over the last two decades or right. so. Um so yeah, I mean we like like you say Amber, we can't speculate on the the facts alleged here or certainly what's going to happen. I don't know if this is the first case uh, ADHD discriminate or ADHD sort of discrimination case brought against a, a big firm like this, but as you say Bill, uh, unlikely to be the last. If you've read even one story about Donald Trump, Michael Cohen, and hush money payments made to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal, you likely have my next guest to thank. He's a co-author of a new book titled The Fixers, The Bottom Feeders, Crooked Lawyers, Gossip Mongers, and Porn Stars Who Created the 45th President, which expands on his Pulitzer Prize winning reporting for The Wall Street Journal. And he's also a dear, dear friend of mine. It's Joe Palazzolo. Welcome to Pro Se. Thanks for having me. Um, So first things first, how many different... You know, I just read the subtitle of the book. I wanted to know how many sort of iterations of the title were there, how many
3: modifiers and euphemisms. Well, um, catch and kill was was obviously taken. Oh
2: yeah, I was I was gonna say that when the Pharaoh book came out, you were I don't know if you were crestfallen.
3: Yeah, I mean crestfallen is probably an exaggeration. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm very happy for him and his book. Um, yeah, but the fixers was uh, it, sort of a natural thing that we actually put on the um, our proposal. Yeah, it, I mean it was. Seemed like an obvious title to us. Yeah, and the subtitle we have our editor to uh, to thank for. Oh uh, yeah, see, I didn't know if you were personally involved. Or anything oh, I like mean, that. of course, yeah. it's not like he didn't run it by us or anything. But yeah. uh, our editor Mark Warren, who's amazing, uh, wrote it, and obviously, um, you know, we we uh, we stand by that subtitle. No, yeah, yeah,
2: uh, it has a way of jumping off. But in yeah. any case, uh, you open the book uh, with a meeting between Trump and Michael Cohen and David Pecker, the CEO of American Media Inc. Uh, and that really is a good entry point for the story, which I'm sure is why you opened with it. Tell us about
3: what happens at that meeting. So this is a meeting. It's in August, 2015. Uh, so we're just a couple months after Donald Trump is, you know, descended the escalator, announces candidacy. And, um, uh, David Pecker, you know the the chief executive of the parent of the National Enquirer, is visiting Trump at Trump Tower, and uh, essentially Trump asks him, you know, what can you do for my campaign? Um, and uh, and Pecker has a couple of ideas. He says, first of all, I can slime your, you know, political rivals right. in the pages of uh, my glorious tabloids, um, and then second. Uh, And and more importantly, he says, you know, there are going to be people coming forward trying to peddle stories about you, including your former peccadillos, um, and we can snatch those up. We can buy those up and make sure that they never see the light of day.
2: Uh, And that, of course, is an important precursor to, of course, hush money payments that are eventually made to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal, both of whom had who had trysts with trump you know several years prior but i think an important part of understanding the story um is understanding sort of how this tabloid world generally works and a whole early part of the book before you even get to trump there's sort of anecdotes about arnold schwarzenegger and tiger woods and jfk jr and you guys remarked you and you and michael rothfeld uh, was your co-author here um you you remarked how it was just a very different world than normally covering like white shoe lawyers and corporate crime and things like that what did you yeah. learn like 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 what is the what what is the sort of you know diagnosis of the way this world you know operates
3: uh, I mean, it's messy and uh, gray, extremely yeah. gray. Um, it's like, I'm,
2: like you, I, you. One of my favorite phrases was, "You." It's, it's on the knife's edge of legality with a lot of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: There's there's a, a, a major character in the book, Keith Davidson. Uh, yeah. He's a lawyer for. He was a lawyer for both Karen McDougal and Stormy Daniels, and you know, by his own reckoning, is is kind of like uh, one of the foremost uh, experts on extortion because what he does is he represents. Uh, women, or he did represent women who have kind of dirt on powerful people, yeah, um, and helps them monetize that. And so he, like, is you know, basically says, Yeah, I, I, you know, a lot of people, there's black, there's white, I I live in the gray, yeah. And that's kind of how this this world is. Um, it's populated by really interesting people, though. I mean, this is not, uh, uh, it's not vanilla stuff, you know, (laughs) yeah, definitely not. Uh, let's get to
2: the point, the, uh, uh, your actual sort of entry point into the story, which, I mean, I'm just curious to know, you talk about how you got a tip. Can you just tell us about how you got into the story, how you started pulling at this thread?
3: Yeah, yeah. So this this is, uh, now we're, we're in October, about mid-October 2016, so mm-hmm. elections a few weeks away. And my editor, uh, Ashby Jones, who at the time was the, the chief of the law bureau, um, he got a call. And uh, this person, this source, who you know we don't reveal and who remains anonymous to this sure. day, uh says uh you know i you know, there's this guy going around paying off trump's women and uh he 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 didn't give us the name uh Ashby didn't give us the name his source didn't give him the name, but he said uh the initials were k d and he was a california lawyer. Ashby goes back to the guy after we're like Come on, this is give us something. Give us it's something like, else. How did you know? Kevin Durant get mixed up in yeah, this? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, right. And so uh, we get a first name out of him, Keith. So then it's like Keith D. Okay. Uh, and actually, like Google is fairly a powerful tool in these types really of situations. R- really
2: peep behind the investigative journalism curtain here. You were <laughs> yeah. googling
3: around for lawyers in Keith D. In yeah, California. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Uh, all good investigative stories start with Google. Sure. I guess. Um Yeah. So so uh, yeah, we Google. We we find this guy Keith Davidson. Uh, uh, he lists Stormy Daniels as a client on his website. Huh. Uh, his name pops up in sort of these cases where you know you have like uh, former Charlie Sheen mistresses, and so I mean, there's he's clearly part of this world, and so he really was our focal point. Okay. You know, in those past, so then you have the name, and then we built built out his world. Sure. Um, and then I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to relay the. Uh, I don't mean to,
2: I don't mean to have you give away all the goods in the book. Everybody should read the book, but you and Rothfeld. There's there's a there's a there's a evocative scene in the book where you go to Grand Central Terminal. Right. right. To tell it. Just just tell
3: us about that. Yeah. So we uh, we've been making calls Um my, my editor at The Wall Street Journal, Mike Sicanalfi, calls it uh, smile and dial. You yeah. know, I mean, we, we weren't sourced in this area. So we were sure. literally just populating spreadsheets and calling a bunch of people. Eventually, we did make some headway. And uh, you know, word got around to someone that we were that we were sniffing around. Then this person said, "I think I can help you out." Yeah. This person arranged through an intermediary for uh, uh, you know me to get the National Enquirer, um, uh, the uh, the NDA between the National Enquirer and Karen McDougal. Anyway, so it, it, the exchange happens at Grand Central Terminal, right by the the brass clock, like in the middle. And the person doing it, we're both sort of. Like this is really silly. Yeah, you know, well, like... I, was, I was gonna say. I mean, what was the what, what was like the demeanor like of all the parties here? It uh, was we self-consciously spy versus spy. You know, okay. we, we were like, why? You know, uh, it was it was fun. Um, anyway, and and it was great because it was this you know brown uh, uh, envelope with the tie, and there was the the contract. I shouldn't call it an NDA. It was, it was content agreement, right. nominally. Uh, you know. McDougall's contract with, and then also it was her retainer agreement with Keith Davidson. That was important because the contract itself doesn't mention Trump's name. It right. just says, you know, that they're buying a story. With you know,
2: she hadn't she had an affair with a
3: married man. Yeah. Then right? quote then married man. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you know the the uh, the retainer agreement actually very clearly says that Keith Davidson was representing her in yeah. potential claims against Trump. Uh,
2: um. So you know, one of the obviously. One of the very surprising things about Trump's candidacy starting in 2015 and then when he ultimately wins is that, you know, a lot he was written off by a lot of the Republican kingmakers at the time. You know, he comes like you say, he comes down the escalator. Nobody really takes it seriously until he starts knocking down primaries. And it's like almost too late. Right. Um, There's like a you describe sort of something parallel is happening in this, you know, sort of backroom tabloid lawyer world where the actual value of the story, the value of these women's accounts is is becoming more urgent like the more seriously he emerges as a candidate, right? I mean, and that affects like the newsworthiness of the story. The idea that, oh, th- th- this is why this stuff kind of was happening right in the run-up to the election. Can you talk about sort of how Trump's own team was assessing the risk that these women posed as time went on, as the campaign is playing out?
3: Well, so... You know, Stormy Daniels and her manager were out trying to sell the story for the better part of a year. Right, right, and That's, like, yeah. and everybody was just like, no, like, you know, we're uh, Gina Rodriguez was asking for like two hundred thousand dollars, two hundred fifty thousand dollars, which is a huge sum in mm-hmm. the tabloid world. Yeah, um, and uh, and and Trump's team wasn't it, with the McDougal story. Sort of shifting gears here. You know, she was initially trying to sell the story to the National Enquirer, not really knowing that the National Enquirer Pecker relationship with Trump and all that. Mm-hmm. And um, and it wasn't urgent for the Trump team because yeah. when uh, the Enquirer went out to interview her at Davidson's office in L.A., she was kind of like reluctant. You know, she was resistant. She sure. said she didn't want to be another Monica Lewinsky. Yeah. Um, you know, and then then eventually her story, she ended up getting a deal because she was in talks with ABC. In Stormy's case. Um, it was really Access Hollywood that, like, yeah. you know, changed everything. We're talking about
2: the tape where Trump uh, is, you know, talking about grabbing women by their genitals.
3: And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Mac- the McDougal deal gets done in August of uh, of 2016 because she's having talks with ABC about potentially telling, you know, to yeah. tell-all there. But with Stormy Daniels and Gina, they're still out trying to sell the story and nobody's listening. Then, uh, you know, Access Hollywood happens, and w- within three days of that, like, they-, they have a deal locked down. Yeah. Um. So you actually publish the
2: McDougal payment story um, in the run-up to the election, which, frankly, I had forgotten. And I know that like it getting swallowed up yeah, by the news a lot of people did, yeah. figured in it's mentioned in the book. Um, but when you publish the Stormy Daniels story in January of 2018, obviously all hell breaks loose. Um, she instantly, I mean, she was already a notable person because of her profession, um, but uh, she becomes sort of a pseudo-celebrity. Very famously uh, starts a tour of America's strip clubs where I think you went to the first show and I think you had a colorful experience there.
3: Yeah, I did. The paper sent me down to uh, Greenville, uh, South Carolina, which is a a wonderful city. Um, but every single reporter, like from every outlet, like everybody wrote like a
2: Hunter S. Thompson wannabe story of like the, the absurdity of the American experience watching Stormy Daniels. Yeah,
3: there, there were like a lot of atmospheric yeah. stories about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, the journal did not send me down there to do it. They wanted me to see if I could get her to comment. Right. Um, and so, uh, I go there and, and the strip club that it's at is, uh, the only full topless, uh, still smoking permitted <laughs> strip club in all of Greenville. That was at least advertised on the website. And we were there for three hours because we didn't know exactly when they were going to be on. I was sitting there with a, a New York Post reporter, and um, uh, so she comes on her last performance of the of the evening. She comes out, all the reporters are like standing around the stage, um, and she's uh, you know I, I don't remember whether it was like a Little Bo Peep thing. She's, <laughs> like, it doesn't; it's not really important. Uh, but so she, yeah, so as soon as she like flings her top off, she kind of uh, makes she's going around and grabbing people by the head and then um you know like pulling them into her bosom yeah and uh and she uh she headed like straight for me um did and- she know who you were I don't know if she did or not. Uh, There was an intermission between her first and second show where I went up and tried to get her to comment and gave her our story. Oh, yes. Okay. So, um, you know, whether she was, like, making the connection that I was with the Wall Street Journal and that we had reported this story, I'm not really sure, I I assume. Okay. Anyway. But But anyway. Yeah. So she's, and there are reporters on either side of me, (laughs) right, and she just walks up and yeah, and and grabs me, um, and then she purred my ear as well. Oh wow! Very yes, nice. Yeah, and it became like a you know it was like a it was like a thing because I'm covering the story and <laughs> um, and you know now this woman has touched me and by the way this is the same thing that she did in Ohio when she was later arrested uh, on kind oh of yeah. trumped up charges that were then dismissed and then she filed a civil rights lawsuit and so
2: I'm sure you put this
3: right at the top of the Pulitzer application yeah yeah no right you're right. You're, you're really getting into it and living the story that's good yeah right right <laughs> right. Yeah, so that was a, a pretty unique experience in the reporting of this story.
2: Um, I want to talk beyond this matter of the payments made to women, the title of the book is, of course, The Fixers, and you do a good job of sort of illustrating the characters that populate his world in the sense of trying to take care of problems for him, whether we're talking about Michael Cohen or David Pecker, any number of other people, but you start with his relationship with Roy Cohn, who right. was the sort of attack dog for Joseph McCarthy, went on to a number of other things. Um Put simply, what does Trump look for in these people? Like, what, how, how, how do these fixers sort of ingratiate themselves to him?
3: Uh, is loyalty, yeah. first and foremost. I mean, there, we got uh, a transcript. Roy Cohn, towards the end of his career, uh, was, was disbarred, yeah. right, right before he died. Um, and, uh, and in those bar proceedings, uh, Trump actually goes and testifies. He's a character witness for him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they're asking him, like, hey, you know, but, you know, what what do you think about, but Roy Cohn, and uh, and he says uh, you know he's straight one hundred percent straight with those are the words he used which you know looking back's ironic, yeah. um, but also he says uh, he's he's loyal he's loyal and that's you know that's all you can ask for in in an attorney um, I, I don't know if that's I don't I don't think that's all you should be asking for in an attorney but sure um, well, and we haven't
2: talked about Cohen specifically yet um, so. Most people know the story. I mean, he he is he has a hand in both of these uh, hush money payment deals. I yep. know that the, the McDougal is between AMI and her, but he is, um, you know, he he's a central figure. He eventually, you know, he's he is fiercely loyal to Trump, and he eventually sort of takes the fall. And he's serving at, was it was like a three year prison sentence yep. or something. So. Yep. Um, um, he kind of reminds me of like Tom from Succession in that he seems to be an <laughs> ill fit for the world that he inhabits but he so badly wants to like get in the good graces of the people who are in this world right what is your I mean what is your impression of him like as a character he's like he comes off as like a very colorful like character what was it like reporting on him at, like in depth
3: yeah you know, on, like, yeah the time? I mean so we it was reporting on him so you're kind of looking at him uh, from a distance but then also having dealt with him in this time sure yeah so he's know, uh, y- you know, he he uh, he was attracted to kind of Trump's gloss, right? He um, he's always been kind of looking for ways to make a buck, mm-hmm. and uh, and he really did idolize Trump. He the celebrity of Trump was really attractive to him, sure. so. Anyway, yeah, we all know the stories about him kind of bullying on Trump's behalf. Yeah, um, he would go on TV and like you know bulldoze the press and things like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And talking to reporters, you know, threats he sent legal, legal threats, you know, frequently. Obviously, he was involved in the in the um, uh, in paying Stormy Daniels. Uh, but then there's kind of this other side of him. He uh, he helped out a lot of people. Everyone sort of speaks of him as he's a he's a relationships guy, right? He, yeah, ma- he makes connections. And, uh, and he's really gregarious. He can be really charming. Um, so there were these two, like, very interesting sides of him. Yeah.
2: Well, he also, like, affects a certain tough guy, like, bravado thing going on, which people, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. People don't quite seem to take it so seriously like he walks around and telling people he's got a gun on his ankle yeah, yeah. At multiple times
3: yeah i mean yeah he he does he has a, an ankle holster had an ankle holster. yeah he,
2: he literally does it's not just that he's saying that he yeah, literally yeah, did and yeah, showed no. it to people yeah right yes yeah.
3: yes he did show it to people um yeah and and he did he has this tough guy routine but there's a part in the book um you know this is from this is from michael uh rothfeld my co-author he reported this. Uh, so you know, one time he's trying to Cohen's trying to get in to see the boss, right? And Keith Schiller, who is Trump's longtime bodyguard, yeah. was is standing in there, and he's and Schiller's like, "No, you can't get in to see him. He's busy right now." And then <laughs> and then you know, Cohen like tries to push by him, and then uh, and Schiller just like flips him to the ground, you know. <laughs> um, and you know, it's sort of those kind of things where you're like, "No, like here's a tough guy, right? And, uh, and yeah. here's a guy putting on a show going up against a tough guy." Makes sense. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Okay, so there's a lot of lawyers listening. We can get you out of here on this. Um,
2: that's, of course, what primarily comprises the audience. Do you have any tips or, or advice for someone out there uh, who might want to be Donald Trump's lawyer, given that you've been in this orbit for a long time?
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, so do everything in your power um, to uh, to make him feel good about himself. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, to make sure that you like slay his enemies in like the the most <laughs> <laughs> like merciless way possible, um, and show undying loyalty no matter how poorly he treats you. All right, um, there you go. And you may, but you know, hey, this is I mean, I'm this is half unjust. But, I know. Yeah. But he so the when he you know he picked his it's not like he was bad at picking out lawyers. I mean, Roy Cohn was uh, evil, but um, everyone sort of agrees that he was brilliant. Right? Yeah. They knew it. Um. You know, his other attorneys uh, have been extremely high caliber attorneys who've worked for him. His divorce attorney, who was not a divorce attorney at all, you know, (laughs) just uh, so I I don't want to Michael Cohen was was uh, he was. We can call him a fixer, obviously, but he wasn't really Trump's attorney. Yeah. You know, he was more of his bag man.
2: Yeah. Okay. Uh, Well, Joe, thanks so much for coming in. Uh, The book, again, is The Fixers, The Bottom Feeders, Crooked Lawyers, Gossip Mongers, and Porn Stars Who Created the 45th President. Joe, thanks for being on Pro Se. Thanks
3: for having me.
0: glad we got to have Joe on the show today. Thanks for taking a point on that, Alex. Yes, thanks. And thanks a lot for being with me today, Bill.
1: See you again next week, guys.
0: We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Steven Trader, our graphic designer Chris Yates, and our guest this week, Joe Palazzolo. Our contributing reporters are Matthew Santoni and Matthew Perlman. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts so other people can find us. For more information about anything we've talked about, check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.